0: welcome to Hallelujah Monkeys for July 24th. My name is Dylan Flynn.
1: My name is Trevor Ickrath.
0: Baby Watch 2017. Trevor.
1: Right, you're you're going through some real some. It's it's all starting to really happen for you, right? You're passing through some pregnancy event horizons.
0: It's true. And I and okay. So the, on the same day, I found out that I'm having a girl, and I felt my baby kick for the first time, and. Two games that I really wanted for the Nintendo Switch went on sale, so it was a very emotional day for me. Here's the thing: let me let me give you a little peek behind the curtain, listener. We try to keep this show down to an hour and a half. That's our target every week.
1: We usually make an hour fifteen.
0: Hour fifteen, really? That's like the that's the soft limit. An hour and a half is like the hard limit, you know? Yeah,
1: we we usually hit that target though.
0: I'm nervous about this week. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we've got a lot to get through. This is going to be, like, ooh boy.
0: Don't be surprised if the number...
1: Yeah, if you look at, if your podcast app alerts you that there's a new L.O.U. Monkeys and it's, like, fucking three hours long.
0: <laughs> then we failed you. <laughs> we're going to tr- try. We're going to try to be as, as uh, keep it to as much of a clip as we can. That being said, let's get into what I would call a more abbreviated or efficient uh, news segment. This weekend, uh, Gorillas are going to play a couple of gigs in Japan and Korea for the first time in Japan since 2002, and for the first time in Korea ever.
1: Nice. I wonder if they're gonna. I wonder if they're gonna switch up the set lists a little bit. You know,
0: they're getting a little stale.
1: Um, well, I think the set lists are actually kind of getting a little worse, in my opinion. Like, I don't want to say it, but like, starting to get a little bit worried for our, our October show. Although I assume by then the set list will have changed even more.
0: RollingStone.com did a feature with Russell where he shared five uh, songs that he loves. Trevor, yeah, that was cool. Uh, should we talk about which ones uh, they are? Uh, we got "High Steppin' by Love Unlimited. That's a cool, like, disco song. Uh, "Electric Relaxation" by a tribe called Quest. That's a that's a, a pretty cool tribe called Quest song. It's a bit more of a down tempo one.
1: I saw them uh, do that at uh, FYF Fest here yesterday.
0: Hey, that's awesome. We had Servitude by Fishbone, which is kind of like uh, in that lineage of of Gil Scott Heron, like, you know, poet genius musicians.
1: I really liked uh, Russell's little blurb for this one, though. It was, give a monkey a brain and he'll swear he's the center of the universe. True for most apes, but not for gorillas. We know what's really going on.
0: I like that. I like that Russell's doing commentary on all these two. I enjoy that. And then we got an Aphex Twin song that I played 30 seconds of and stopped like I do with most Aphex Twin songs. I'm not really an Aphex Twin guy, but Laughable Butane Bob is the name of that song. And then uh, finally... Saw's a classic. A song called uh, A Real Mother For You by Johnny Guitar Watson, which uh, sounds very early 70s to me.
1: The sleeve shows a pimp in a white suit riding a go-kart with pram wheels and a Rolls-Royce grill. Only the baddest MF in town is going to pull that off.
0: Respect. That's what Russell has to say. Yeah. Okay, are you ready? Is it book report time, Trevor?
1: That's exactly how I've been thinking about this, honestly.
0: (laughs) All right, let's get into the roundtable. Murdoch Nichols was born in the stinking borough of Stoke-on-Trent on June the 6th, 1966. The exact whereabouts have never been verified, but it was rumored that Murdoch's mother gave birth to him while still in residence at the Belphegor Sanatorium, a halfway house for the sick, the needy, and the incredibly bored. Whatever the truth behind this is, the infant Murdoch was found abandoned upon the doorstep of his nefarious father's house. Uh, that is right. The 2006 official Gorillas lore, Bible, and biography, Rise of the Ogre, is the subject of this and next week's episode, Trevor. And, uh, right. and we're going to take you through the entirety of Phase 1 and most of 1.5 today.
1: We are we are about halfway through our third season, which focuses on uh, Jamie Hewlett's side of the project and the lore of the band. Uh, but I think but I think this is the uh, biggest chunk we've had to get through yet. I mean, this was we're really really doing a deep dive on lore this week. This
0: is a uh, welcome to the story of Gorillas. You know what? I actually think this is going to feel really good, Trevor, because we're going to do. All of rights of the ogre, and then we're going to do Murdoch's Pirate Radio and the Book of Blank series. Yes, and then it'll be like we've we've told the entire story of. Gorillas, we'll be all caught up. Know? Yeah,
1: we'll be we'll be we'll be here in the present again,
0: ready for that TV show.
1: Oh my god! Yeah. I cannot wait for the season where it's just like an episode, episode by review. That's going to be so cool.
0: I, I, have a little, I have a little format that I'm going to use to discuss this book with you today, Trevor, but I think I don't need to really explain it. I think it'll be emergent. The audience will understand as we move through the book how it works. Before we get into the book proper, Trevor, what did you think of Rise of the Ogre? First of all, I've only read this one time before. How about you?
1: I read this back when it first came out when I was like uh, 16. I think I might have gotten it for Christmas.
0: I think that I definitely got it for Christmas. I, be, I believe it came out in the in America in November, so that was it's kind a good of perfect. Christmas gift.
1: If, if there's a Gorillaz fan in your life and you want to uh, if you want to, if you want to treat them right, uh, look up, find one of these books for sale for like five thousand oh, dollars on the internet. <laughs> yeah, they're very expensive now.
0: Uh, yeah. But what did you think? What did you think in, upon revisiting it?
1: What did I think of Rise of the Ogre? Well, first, before we talk about Rise of the Ogre, I think we need to talk about... I want to talk to you about something else. I want to talk to you about Murdoch Nichols.
0: Oh, yeah. The, you mean the lead character of Rise because of the Ogre? Because this is
1: where... I'm I pretty sure this is where, listening to We Are the Dirty, it's not quite there yet. This is where Murdoch Nichols really becomes the main character of Gorillas.
0: Yes. And also the internal antagonist, I believe. is This is, sure. this is the true sure. moment.
1: He's his own worst enemy, yeah. I mean, there are some antagonists in this book, but like um, now that you say that, I almost feel like they're kind of red herrings. I think your capacity to enjoy Rise of the Ogre can only be stretched as far as your capacity to enjoy Murdoch Nichols and the way he is written for long stretches of time.
0: Which, I gotta say, okay, I'll just jump in right now and tell sure. you that I really do love this book. I have my issues with this book that are, sure. that are Pretty present and prevalent through through most of it. Yes, and and at times you definitely become painfully aware that sort of Cass Brown is not used to the long form uh, prose format. Yes, but but this is so Gorillas. This is such a a central uh, Gorillas release, and my fandom and just my appreciation for the project made this a real page turner for me.
1: Okay, cool i was I found myself frequently a little fatigued. that is mainly, I think, due to the writing style. I mean, it's it I think this is great in short bursts, probably on a chapter by chapter basis. I would like that's how i re- would recommend people approach it. But like, when I found myself sitting down for long stretches, there were definitely sequences I ended up skimming
0: the prose voice, the narrative voice, is kind of very one note. It's very adulative it is
1: also very like fatiguing, like, to the point of being exhausting. I think there's only so much of this, like, this is the story of gorillas, and it's told in this very madcap, fanciful way that just, just wore on me a little bit over a period of time, I guess.
0: But that being said, when, when the characters are being the characters and interacting with each other and, and getting into hijinks, I, it's just... I, I find it so comforting. It's like comfort food to me.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, this is a very definitive gorillas release. I mean, up until... <laughs> Up until this point, like it's all in here.
0: What in phase one happened that isn't covered? I mean, individual articles are discussed at sometimes at length in, yeah.
1: this, in this book. More than ever, though, looking through this book, I feel like this was going to be the Gorillas movie. They talk a lot about what it would have been. Like, uh, I think they've compared it to that Monkey's film, Head, but I feel like this mm-hmm. is probably what we would have gotten.
0: I think that uh, some of it that is a little bit more like tour diary stuff probably wouldn't have been. But when you get really, really heavy lore, it feels like this would, would have been ripped straight from that screenplay. Right. Uh, let's get into it, Trevor.
1: First uh, meeting of the Halloween Monkeys Book Club.
0: Yay! I'm going to break this thing down into its subheadings, except for at the beginning, Trevor, when we have a, a short chapter and a short prelude. So so sure. just bear with me as we kind of settle into the format, Trevor. All right, let's do it. Here's a summary of that prelude. Murdoch is forced by his domineering father to perform I've Got No Strings while dressed as Pinocchio for a local star search. You know, this is one of those, the first scene of Fight Club where you where you cut into the action, kind of, but I guess you're technically... Going, doing like a you know what i mean trevor it's like a little out of context uh, uh vignette from the lives of the character
1: not for yeah and right from the get-go this is murdoch we don't get we don't get 2d working at uh his with his dad or uh, noodle getting packed in a box or anything we start off with murdoch as a kid and they say this is where the seeds of gorillas were sown
0: which which feels a little bit like a stretch and i think murdoch kind of agrees with me
1: <laughs> yeah. Does any say he's gobsmacked uh, that they're starting the book there?
0: Yeah, he, which I, which kind of made me chuckle because when I got to that point, I was like, I don't know, is this really where the idea for? Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, I see.
1: Maybe we should talk about real quick since I just mentioned it. The format that this book is written in, we kind of get a narrative voice that almost is like the book equivalent of like a narrator during a music uh, documentary or something like that, and then occasionally they will intersperse it with little quotes from the characters that sometimes happen in real time sometimes are pulled from the moment they almost seem like sound bites pulled from the moment
0: and sometimes it's almost like the the band is reading the book along with you and like objecting to it and making fun of it as you as you read it it's very interesting little bit yeah 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 okay trevor here comes the first in a series of discussion questions let's do it Trevor, to what extent does a history of early childhood abuse excuse the behavior of people who grow up to be abusers? Uh, this one, I think it doesn't excuse it at all. Murdoch being being a shit, he's, we, he's still responsible for all of he the does, shit behavior. He does some
1: brutal stuff in this book,
0: too. And this, we aren't even in phase three yet. <laughs> no, no, and that's where he becomes, you know, torturous. Chapter one, nature adores a vacuum. Summary. Cass Brown extols the virtues of gorillas and their many achievements, while Murdoch masturbates.
1: Which is fitting, because this is, the notes I have here is chapter one, masturbatory intro. I think it works both ways.
0: I want to point out, right off the bat, where this book pretty consistently calls the band The Gorillas.
1: They're kind of like a Talking Heads thing, where it's like, the name of this band is Gorillas.
0: Yes, but do you But I mean,
1: it's so easy to slip into that kind of thing, I honestly didn't even notice it.
0: I usually say Gorillas, unless it's attached to, like a noun so i'll say like the gorillas project or the gorillas video or whatever like that you know
1: yeah I, I generally tend to avoid the the i've just been raised to not not keep it in there
0: you were raised right by uh by by sebastian Ickrath. i don't <laughs> i don't see a lot of fans putting the, the no me either in fact i where i normally encounter the is kind of in newbie fans or like journalists will throw out of the. uh i do like that that Cass mentions gorillas have sold 15 million records worldwide to date, and two albums later, you can bump that number almost all the way up to 18 million.
1: Yikes! <laughs> oh my god, that is so bad. Oof, that hurts. <sighs>
0: Discussion question! Uh, does the bit about Murdoch achieving orgasm justify this level of self-indulgence? <laughs> I think you can tell that this was
1: a really compelling chapter, because we immediately started talking about the, uh, Gorillas versus the gorillas
0: debate. So. <laughs> and it's a full chapter. The rest of the chapters are much longer.
1: Yeah, it's it's only like two or three pages, but.
0: From now on, we're going to break it up into subheadings, Trevor. Chapter two Unto the World, a band is born. Uh, subheading Murdoch Nichols, Spawn of Stoke. Summary. Murdoch appears on his father's doorstep, suffers bullying in school, discovers metal music, makes a deal with the devil, and forms a string of unsuccessful bands.
1: Uh, this is where we first start being introduced to the band members and their respective backstories. First up, we got Murdoch because, like I said, he's the main character of this book and the main character of the band, I guess.
0: Did you, did you, were you thrown initially while, when they started calling him Murdoch Alphonse Nichols? Not particularly. I was like, that seems wrong. I don't understand. But then later, when he sells his soul to the devil, he changes it to Faust. And I was like, oh, that makes sense.
1: I was thrown to learn that he had a brother.
0: Yeah, Hannibal Nichols, his brother, Hannibal broke his nose for the second and third time.
1: We finally get a timeline of every time his nose is broken, right? What is it, like eight or nine?
0: Uh, somewhere around that. So the first time was Tony Chopper, his, his school bully. And then the second and third time were his brother, Hannibal Nichols, who's in jail now for, what is it, stealing scrap metal? Something like that, yeah. And then you've got his father, Sebastian Nichols, who's this kind of grim... Sadistic, womanizing, alcoholic piece of shit. Very similar to the adult Murdoch Nichols in, in some ways.
1: Some cool artwork of the two of them together that opens this chapter, though. That's one of my that's one of my favorite Hewlett sketches in the uh, book.
0: Yeah, that's a great one with sort of a, sort of a, a, a ghastly looking Sebastian and like a, a miserable looking little Murdoch. He's got the top hat on, very cool. Uh, he calls Black Sabbath his primary influence. I don't think that's a surprise.
1: I actually gave that best of a spin after I read this.
0: I love that fake show poster they have for one of his uh, earlier bands, like a 1993 poster for the Burning Sensations.
1: Yeah, rare live show from Murdoch's Burning Sensations.
0: And, and it looks so perfect for like a, yeah. a, a Xerox early 90s punk show poster. He's got these heels on. It's, it's pretty good, yeah. I have a discussion question for you, Trevor. In light of the evil deal made uh by murdoch nichols to ensure his success do you and i genuinely like gorillas music or is our enjoyment of it a result of satan's black magic at work i think uh
1: i I think most of the emotions i feel are the result of satan's black magic at work (laughs) including you know joy hunger i haven't felt those things in a long time but sure
0: What do you think, Don? I think that the music's probably genuinely good, but not because the band is talented. Because Satan is working through them. That's my guess. That's fair. That's fair. Do you
1: think that, at any point during this project, Damon and Jamie made a deal with Satan? I bet you that Damon tried. He is into Dr. D and all that ancient British occult stuff.
0: It's true. I bet he he tried a little witchcraft here or there. So, uh, speaking of,
1: I don't know why this is a transition. Speaking of Damon, next we learn about 2D. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, subheading, 1,
0: two, D, 3, in the suburbs, they're spooked. Summary, 2D grows up in a quiet neighborhood, falls out of a tree onto his head, suffers from migraines, and fiddles with keyboards. Uh, we're introduced to his dad and mom in this uh, chapter, David Pott, uh, his dad is a mechanic, and Rachel Pott, his mom, who's described as a big-breasted nurse.
1: And they were uh, they were originally the Tusspots, but uh, then they changed their name, right?
0: Yeah, it's, and 2D seems to be unaware that his last name is Tusspot. Is this a joke? I don't get this joke. I think a Tusspot is a, is that's a British slang meaning like an asshole or something.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: I think that, or maybe it means a toilet. It could mean a toilet.
1: So this is just uh, the same 2D story we've always been told. It's a kind of a thick young child who grows up into a thick adult.
0: Yeah, he's got, he's got headaches all the time. He's being drugged for them. He really loves the Human League a lot. They give a little list
1: of bands that inspire him. There's the Jam, the Specials, the Clash, Wire, the Buzzcocks, and of course his favorite artist, the Human League.
0: Are you a big Human League fan? I do like the Human League. I think that, that I don't know that any of their albums kind of hold up, but the singles are great.
1: Yeah, pick up a Greatest
0: Hits comp. That's what I would recommend if you want to try out the Human League.
1: I still remember hearing Sound of the Crowd for the first time going, wow. Damon Alburn really likes this band.
0: At least go listen to Sound of the Crowd if you've never done that. As a Gorillas fan, that'll be a fun experience for you. Brum, 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 brum,
1: brum, 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 brum,
0: Discussion question. Trevor Genetics, injury, and narcotics all seem to contribute to 2D's limited mental ability. Percentage-wise, how would you split up that pie chart?
1: I'm gonna give injury. I'm gonna give injury a full 50. I've recently been reading up on the history of the band, the replacements. And they have a very similar start. Their, uh, their front man, uh, Paul Westerberg, uh, was playing in a junkyard when he was a small kid, and he hit his head on something sharp, I think, and after that, he was never the same. I think Narcotics, probably, maybe, like, I'm going to go all the way to 35 with that one.
0: Because it's probably slowing him down a lot.
1: Yeah. And then I think Genetics, uh, 15, because I don't think we ever really get any big indications that his parents are kind of, I don't know, slow people.
0: That's a good point. Okay, this is a great this is a great section, Trevor. Subheading. August 15th, 1997, D-Day. Here comes the summary. It's a it's a longer one cuz I got I got it's very kinetic. After Murdoch hits 2D with his car and puts him into a coma
1: while trying to steal instruments from his dad's shop, good point to to help his band get better gear. He rams his car through the window to break in and get these instruments. Yeah. It's,
0: it's very rock and roll. The court <laughs> demands he look after his helpless victim. And then later, Tootie is thrown clear from Murdoch's car in yet another accident. But this time, the blow to his head wakes him up, and Murdoch hires him as the lead singer of Gorillas.
1: So, reading this part, this was where it clicked for me. Oh, this is officially sanctioned Gorillas fan fiction. <laughs> like, I love it. This is the first part of the uh, of the book that strikes me as very fan fiction-y. It's even written in the same voice sometimes. It's just, I don't know, it's maybe because I've read some Gorillaz fanfic in my day. This really reads like it.
0: I can see that. I think it's very charming. I like that the first the, the two accidents create his trademark black eyes. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I do love the, the extensive storyboard of this uh, whole sequence. Except for I have to admit, there's one spot that I totally get thrown by each time where it seems like we see a third car accident that isn't described in the text at all Hmm. but i don't know i still love the fact that that you've got this cool jamie hewlett storyboard of this fateful day see
1: the storyboards here which i do love yeah this is where i uh started thinking oh maybe this was supposed to be the movie
0: yeah because why else would he have i mean it seems it would be nice if jamie hewlett was like oh let me go ahead and storyboard this chapter you wrote Brown." but it doesn't seem like that would have happened right
1: yeah yeah and it, it definitely isn't consistent throughout the book either i think this might be the only time we see it
0: uh, discussion question. The court sentenced Murdoch to 30,000 hours of community service, nearly three and a half years. What kind of volunteer work would best suit Murdoch Nichols?
1: Hmm. I'm trying to think of the person Murdoch is.
0: Do you think that they would have, like, a maybe a, a raptor center where he could just tend to the injured ravens? Probably wouldn't be bad, although... We, we really haven't gotten an indication
1: that he takes good care of the one that he owns already. <laughs> That's a good part. I, I don't know if he really strikes me as an animal person. Probably like stocking cigarette machines or something.
0: Oh yeah, that's good. That's that's yeah. a good community service. Help help the impulsive of us die sooner. Yeah. Speaking of, by the way, Trevor, I don't know if you've do been if you've been checking up on Jamie Hewlett's Instagram account. He recently got a pet raven. Uh,
1: Perfect. <laughs> which is,
0: more more credence to the Jamie's 2D
1: and <laughs> Jamie's Murdoch theory.
0: Great. I think he's really leaning into it now. This is my favorite
1: part of the book, at least what we've read so far. This is my favorite section.
0: It's up there. It's not quite my favorite. I'll tell you when we get there. But but this is this is a really fun one.
1: I just love the thought of Murdoch having to care for comatose two D. I know. I feel like I've been starting to say this every episode. But if you want to write a fan fiction about that, please submit it.
0: Subheading: Russell Hobbs waking the slumbering giant. Summary. A demon-possessed Russell massacres his school classmates, gets expelled and exercise, discovers hip-hop, is the sole survivor of a drive-by shooting by the Grim Reaper, gets repossessed by his dead friends, and moves from New York City to England, where he is kidnapped by Murdoch and hired as Gorilla's drummer. This is a good section. I do love the I do love the the shrewdness of Murdoch hearing about this guy who is possessed by all these rappers and being like, oh, I gotta have that guy in the band. This is going to be the best freak show ever. And then Russell just being like, hey, you kidnapped me, but, you know, your music's kind of fire, so I'm on board. I like these demos. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> what about the hip-hop machine, Trevor?
1: Oh, that's cool. And uh, that the hip-hop machine was, for some reason, humans made me think a lot about that during my first listen. I was like, oh, Russell had a hip-hop machine. Damon Auburn has, like, a party music machine.
0: I hadn't thought about the hip-hop machine in ages. There's a, there's a great rendering of it in the book. It's like this giant, you know, monstrosity transformer made up of, of synthesizers and, and drum machines and
1: speaker cabs. That's my favorite piece of Russell, uh, Russell Jamie art in the Gorillaz canon, I think, the hip-hop machine.
0: And then, the, and then the, the, the lore of it is that it contains every beat known to man.
1: Just right? so cool. I love that Russell has that,
0: and Russell calls it the TARDIS of the hip hop world, which I really
1: love. <laughs> good. The 2D introduction chapter, I think, confirms Cass Brown, the Girls fanfic author, as a Murdoch 2D shipper. And This is definitely there's some serious Dell Russell stuff
0: going on. Oh, absolutely, right. I think there, he calls him so, his soulmate at one point. And Russell, in general, I think is a, he's he's like the most loving figure in in the band, even though occasionally he has to you know flex his muscles a bit.
1: He's like the paternal figure almost.
0: He has one of the best Russell quotes uh, in the entire project in this chapter when he calls himself Jack of all trades, but a master of drums. (laughs) That is really good. Trevor, discussion question. Uh, Since Reformation, the Catholic Church has not been able to perform exorcisms on any person without papal oversight, okay? (laughs) Russell got exorcised. Does that mean that the Pope knows about Russell and is the Pope a fan of gorillas?
1: I I feel like in classic girls fashion they would have gotten some kind of under the table like back alley exorcism. That's probably true. Um, is the Pope a fan of gorillas? If he is, I bet he feels a little bad about it because um of the whole Satanism thing. The Pope seems like he would really dig into the gorillas' lore. You know what? You know, oh, one of them's a Satanist. <laughs> I don't know about that.
0: Uh, this is not a full section of the book, Trevor. But here is where we do get a brief aside about Paula Cracker. Oh yeah, little little uh, little, little little Paula Cracker aside. Little little. Little a, a little bit of Paula Cracker aside. A little bit of...
1: We actually see her here, too. That's a cool uh, piece of art with her in 2D.
0: Yeah, with her little with their little slit sunglasses. Those are
1: cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that a lot.
0: This is also where Russell breaks uh, Murdoch's nose a further five times mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. for betraying 2D. I don't know if you know the story, if you're listening. 2D was dating a gal named Paula Cracker. She was hired as the uh, guitarist for Gorillaz, and she kind of sucked. And she had sex with Murdoch in the toilet, so she was fired.
1: This is a whole aspect of Murdoch's character that just doesn't check out for me. That Two D's girlfriends are so attracted to him that they will continuously cheat on Two D. This isn't the first
0: time we see it happen, is it? Paula Cracker seems like she's sort of a she was a Murdoch girlfriend at heart to begin with, <laughs> kind of an unstable, uh, fucked up lady. Subheading: Noodle, a very special delivery. Summary. Noodle arrives via FedEx package and is hired as Gorilla's guitarist, and then the band records Ghost Train, Murdoch sends off some demo tapes, and 2D dates a pop star. Yeah, I don't have that's You know, this is just like a very moving chest pieces around the board kind of a chapter. Uh, no,
1: as, as 2D says, we weren't really gorillas until Noodle arrived.
0: That's true. And we do get a cool little picture of the actual FedEx box that she came in, which is like a wooden crate.
1: And we get a quote from Noodle saying, sometimes good things came in small packages. I arrived in a FedEx crate.
0: Okay, discussion question, Trevor. Two band members so far have been in comas, and now one has amnesia. Would you call this endearingly bad writing or inexcusably bad writing i'm gonna have to lean towards
1: endearing because i i love thinking about gorillas as this small group of adult individuals we've got yeah. murdoch who has had a horribly abused childhood russell who has you know watched his soulmate die in front of demons
0: him. and he ghosts, was, um, so.
1: and he had to be ethered to be uh to get in the band in the first place. 2D, you know, we talked about that, oh my god, and then there's Noodle, this little small amnesiac girl.
0: They certainly threw everything, everything on the table, didn't they?
1: They did, yeah. So what do you think?
0: It's all a little bit anime backstory-ish, isn't it? Little it's all bit. a little bit main character in a Final Fantasy game, sort little, of. Yeah.
1: Uh, Final Fantasy loves amnesia.
0: But hey, I'd definitely play a turn-based RPG starring gorillas. I'd, I'd oh for sure god. play that. Oh god.
1: Oh, this could be a whole episode where we design a gorilla's JRPG. Can we do that in the future, please?
0: For sure. Subheading, the Camden Brown House. Summary, Gorillas inside a riot, one song into their first gig, get signed to EMI, and meet an industry veteran. Then, Murdoch drives away Tootie's new girlfriend by being disgusting, and the band gets started on their first album. In this chapter, Trevor, we meet some very important characters.
1: So yeah, this is a story we've already heard in the Apex tapes, you know, the first uh interview uh tapes that we talked about last week. Gorilla's Camden Brownhouse performance, they played punk, whole thing got shut down and they were immediately signed. Here we uh get an actual picture of uh the A&R guy who signed Gorilla's, Mr. Wiffy Smithy.
0: Yes, and perhaps even more importantly, a picture of the negotiator, his ever-present sawed-off shotgun. Yes. <laughs> He can be
1: very persuasive.
0: I love the idea of them just, like, using this book to make fun of their A&R guy and, like, call him a hillbilly who forces you at gunpoint to sign contracts. (laughs) I love Whiffy Smiffy. I love everything we get about him. I love him.
1: We're introduced to one of uh, Gorilla's um, uh, most persistent cohorts, young Damon Auburn. And he introduces himself uh, to Murdoch by saying, your Cuban heels are shit. Check out mine. Mine are the proper ones. Russell even describes the boots, uh, saying, uh, Damon was wearing a pair like Murdoch's but with solid silver heels and big fancy gold spurs. I think Murdoch was a bit humiliated. He's very proud of his shoes. Dylan, my discussion question for this chapter, do you think Damon actually owns those shoes?
0: You know, my discussion question also involves those shoes, so let's just get them both on the table. Since Damon has those boots, uh, do you think Damon openly identifies as bisexual or is he kind of in denial about it? Because... There's so much if you go back to nineties Damon Albarn footage, oh my gosh, the homo eroticism is, is Oh yeah.
1: Kissing Graham Coxon on stage, all that kind of stuff. But you know, how much is that for the cameras, right? How much is that for the fangirls?
0: I don't know. As somebody with a with a with a slightly confused sexuality, I just I tend to assume that everybody else is this too. Damon and Jamie lived together. They lived together. Right? And as for those boots, of course Damon Albarn owned those boots. They must have been a relic of the 90s. He for sure owned Cuban heels with gold spurs and and solid steel soles. That happened. With his little earring and gold tooth, too. We also meet uh, Rachel Stevens from Mess Club 7 in this chapter, Trevor.
1: We also get a little quote from her about Murdoch. Do you think that is something that they actually reached out to her
0: for? Well, I think she says it almost verbatim that way in, in Charts of Darkness, if I remember oh,
1: yeah, correctly. Yeah, how did I already forget about that? Oh wait, because I forgot everything about the DVDs.
0: <laughs> you had to purge it from your mind so that you could, so that you can move on with your life. Do you remember S Club Seven being a thing, Trevor?
1: I don't remember any of their songs. I remember them being a band that I probably heard on radio Disney.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I remember them being like this—the epitome of disposable, manufactured pop music. And I cannot remember what their hit was.
1: I mean, I'm sure that's why they—they're they're in the Gorilla Story to begin with.
0: I wonder if it was just like Jamie or Damon was at a party and somebody introduced, "Oh, this is." rachel from s club seven and they were like oh you know what we'd really love it if you (laughs) that'd be so funny okay subheading trevor the history of kong studios this is where i had to start skimming
1: a little a little bit i feel like i've heard so much about kong studios in the in the past couple episodes
0: let's get through the summary (laughs) druids meet to worship on a hill the hill is later used as a plague cemetery a mansion is built on the hill by a sadist to to use as his clubhouse. Then it's taken over by a biker gang who all burn alive inside of it. I did like that part a lot. And finally, Murdoch converts it into Kong Studios Gorilla's home base. In the lore, we meet a character in this chapter, Sir Emric Kong, the, uh, the the hedonist who built Kong Mansion.
1: Important figure in the Gorillas' lore. I really like the picture of uh, Kong Studios that we got too with Aleister Crowley queen and edgar allen poe
0: and i love that the website where where burdock discovered kong studios which is a gigantic disused haunted studios in the middle of nowhere.com is still up and running in 2017 i was very excited about that
1: you you sent me a link to that I i was i was definitely surprised I can't believe they even made it in the first place.
0: Not even archive. You can just type that into your browser, and, and it's that's still there. So,
1: that's so cool. I love little commitments to stuff like that.
0: If only they would archive the actual fucking websites. That would be nice. So, yeah, this was this was tougher for you to get through this one? You felt like a little bit of Kong overload at this point? A little bit. I mean,
1: that and, again, they start talking about the website later, too. And I just, I am a, I'm just—I am a—I'm a gorilla's vet by this point. This, is, this isn't for me.
0: Yeah, I get you. I get you. Okay, discussion question, Trevor. Do you believe that you have personally experienced any supernatural phenomena? Maybe it's my house, uh, but just stuff in
1: here like gets house of leaves all the time. Like it just disappears. Yeah, like it is temporarily swallowed up by time and space, maybe, and just vanishes. I like that. And then it'll turn up somewhere. My the house I like, my my dad's house too, when it got dark there at night, it was like a Supernatural darkness like I don't know if you're aware of um, I don't know if you're familiar with Spongebob Squarepants Oh, of but course there's a quote I from that that goes I like this isn't just darkness. This is advanced darkness And that would happen. <laughs> and when I when I'd be walking when I'd be walking around uh, the house at night The hallways would get longer too. That's fucking legitimately terrifying Sometimes I would be like fumbling to the kitchen and I would just get the feeling that like oh I'm never going to reach the other side it's like, like your Mario and
0: Super Mario 64 trying to exactly, walk up the yeah. stairs.
1: <laughs> just time and time and space all shifting, you know what I mean?
0: That le- that's legitimately scary. Yeah, I that stuff fucks me up. The the closest I have to a paranormal experience, Trevor was being on some really bad LSD, like some tainted LSD that I should have just vomited at a party and Running upstairs to hide in a bedroom And encountering three men Walking around in pig masks With billy clubs in their hands
1: (laughs) Were they real?
0: They were real!
1: Okay. It's not supernatural, then. Those but, are just uh, some it's weirdos wearing masks. It's
0: definitely the most supernatural terror I've ever felt.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm here with some, like, you know, I'm here with some, like, Lovecraftian architecture stuff, and you're just high at a party with some dudes in a pig mask. Okay. I think that they right. were
0: demons. Maybe in my heart, I believe that they were demons. Sure. And then we get into chapter three, how to build a monster. We have a little intro section here, Trevor, the summary of which is... Gorillas record at Kong Studios, experiment with noises, produce a limp-sounding first draft of a record, hire a producer to spice things up, record a ghost rapping, and relocate to Jamaica for some overdubs. So
1: I think this is what the Apex tapes should
0: have been. Yes, I totally agree, and this is probably my favorite section of the book. I really like this section of the book.
1: Totally. This is them making up for the Apex tapes. It's like them listening to the Apex tapes... Then listening to We Are The Dury, which, you know, they might, have, they might have done in preparation for this. There's some pretty good evidence for that later. And then going, oh, this is how we should have done it the first time. Let's make up for that with the book. Because what this section is, is a very in-depth look at gorillas recording the album. And then even after that, we go into a track-by-track review.
0: Before we get into the track by track, Trevor... Which
1: we've said tons of times on this show.
0: Yes, we have. I guess this is kind of a discussion question. It's more just like, can you explain what's going on here to me, Trevor? So in this chapter, they mention Deltron 3030 and Del the Funky Homo Sapien as a past collaborator of Dan the Automator's. Right. And they separately mentioned Dell the Ghost Rapper as the, the performer on Clint Eastwood. How do you make heads or tails of that? What is going on? In the on Gorillas there?
1: universe, I think, I think this is an easy explanation. In the Gorillas universe, Dell the Funky Homo Sapien exists. Dell the Ghost Rapper is just a different character. They never call him Dell the Funky Homo Sapien.
0: They just have they just have very similar voices and the same first name.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I, 2D and Damon Auburn also have very similar voices.
0: That's true, but he, his name isn't Damon D. <laughs> Dell's a common enough name, man. I don't know. Okay, let's get into this because I, I have little notes on the on the track by track. This is really fun. It's really fun to have like a more lore based look into the making of this album. Right,
1: because we learned quite a few things about how uh, each band member contributed to the recording.
0: In fact, let's start with rehash. I love that the lyrics were assembled by Murdoch writing random phrases on magnets and two D throwing them onto a fridge. <laughs>
1: very talking heads are actually very Radiohead. i believe that's how they wrote everything in its right place
0: the the lyrics of rehash back that lord up well i think <laughs>
1: we see some like David all behavior get gorillas gorillified here with them talking about how rehash was recorded they say 2d then got busy with a variety of the amateur instruments moog bleeps theremins extra backing vocals some w delays and deep sub bass sonar noises lastly 2d added a broken sitar line to give it that extra dash of weirdness. This is Damon Auburn working in the studio.
0: Oh, yeah. That's what he does. He finds noises that he likes. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: yeah I mean, we'll see that when we talk about bananas. There's basically this sequence in there. Right, with a different <laughs> it's song. true.
0: It's true. For yeah, a
1: different song. Lo- and so I fucking love seeing that here. People often like look at the music and they go, oh, there's no keyboards on this track. 2D's not on it. Oh, there's no guitar. Noodle's not on this track. Right. As right. we see here, these guys are just doing everything. Like, this is... I just reference them. This is straight up like Radiohead Kid A. Like, let's democratize this whole recording process. Do what you can.
0: Yes, I love that about it, too. And then in, we move on to 5-4, I think it's very funny this little argument that happens between Noodle and Murdoch, where Noodle says, I was playing in 5-4 time, and Murdoch doesn't quite know what that means, being a you know black metal and, and punk fan, and says, no, you were playing out of time, love. What's funny about that is the guitar line in 5-4 is in 5-4, but then the drums are all in straight four on the four times. So it's like, yeah, 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 that's another moment where the lore and the music are like melding in this really lovely way, which I think help. it helps, I think, that Cass Brown is a musician so that he's able to write lore about music that feels very legitimate.
1: Right. Reading through this whole section, you definitely feel that. This is also one of the rare times when we get some sweet words about 2D from uh, Murdoch. He says that uh, the only thing that saves 5-4 is some excellent one-fingered new wave keyboard from 2D. He's just superb
0: when he's like that. I do love the little keys on five four. They are my favorite part of the song. Oh, they're great, yeah. Tomorrow Comes Today. This is great. Uh, Murdoch claims that the ghost of Sir Emric Kong can be heard moaning in the background on this song, Trevor. And he also
1: claims to be uh, the one who's responsible for that whistling we got on the track.
0: <laughs> yeah, he went to take a piss during one of 2D's vocal takes and then thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. I'm whistling while I'm taking a pee there. <laughs> uh, not a lot about New Genius, unfortunately. I love New Genius so much. Yeah, there's so like- much. They don't care about
1: this song, do they, though?
0: No. Murdoch's already getting bored.
1: Yeah, it's reduced to two quotes here. Neither of them are very substantial.
0: Doesn't 2D says that the lyrics are directed at Murdoch? I guess that's kind of interesting.
1: Sure, yeah. But then we get Clint Eastwood.
0: Yeah, Clint Eastwood's got more stuff. Uh, 2D had a cold when he recorded this vocal. I like that. And uh, Murdoch says the track came
1: from him pushing the unmarked reggae setting on his Honda Z chord auto harp. Turned the knob from flop to hit. And Bob's uncle. I'll pop this little classic, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is how Damon Alburn discovered pretty much 90% of what would become Clint Eastwood.
0: It's true. I think it's an Omnicord, actually. Omnicord,
1: but... yeah. He just pressed the button, and it was like, bam, bam, bam,
0: bam, Yeah, if you, bam. if you type in Omnicord Clint Eastwood into YouTube, and you can see some dudes pressing the button that plays Clint Eastwood on an Omnicord. It's very interesting. Yeah. Not much about man research either, Trevor. Unfortunately, another... another sort of slept on Gorilla's track, although I do like that Russell calls it hallucinogenic.
1: Right. The narrator, I guess, does get a little into it. He gives this really kind of uh, impressed description of 2D's vocal multi-tracking.
0: Yeah, but that's not lore. That's just more Cass Brown kind of adulatory writing. Sure, he does you know compare I mean?
1: all the 2Ds to the broomsticks that carry water around in Fantasia, though. I like that.
0: But much more substantial lore-wise is the description of punk, in which we learn that all of the claps are complements of some very elderly bowlers from the Essex Bowling Club.
1: Now, I forgot about this description, but reading it, this made me fucking crack up as like a 16-year-old. Can I just read it? Do you want me to read it?
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: All right. The claps you hear on the track were provided by the geriatrics from the local Essex Bowling Club. I took my dap player down there and got them all to clap along. They obviously don't get out much. I paid them in boiled sweets. And it's the I paid them in boiled sweets. That would really sell it for me.
0: I could just hear they that in the Murdoch voice, you know? And uh, and Russell mentioned, this was the track that got us signed, so it had to go on the album, really. Yeah, and, and Murdoch goes, every album
1: needs a track like this. By now we figured out that's Damon saying that.
0: What about the claim that originally the song was over an hour and a half long and it was cut down to a minute and a half?
1: I would love to hear that. You know, that's, uh, that's also been said about... Um, Helter Skelter by the Beatles. And
0: Charger right by <laughs> by Gorillaz. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Okay, let's move on to Soundcheck Gravity. This was recorded on the roof of the hotel. Noodle engineered. I like that. I like that little detail of Noodle being the one recording uh, 2D's vocals. But there's no mention of Johnny Bird, which I felt very I was, disappointed by. I was a little, by. yeah. I mean, you know what? When this first started
1: out, when they first started going to Jamaica, I was like... I'm going to be really fucking impressed if they bring Johnny Bird into this, but I wasn't surprised to see that he wasn't here.
0: There's some very cool Hallelujah Monkeys listener fan art of Johnny Bird up on our Instagram right now if you want to go look at it.
1: I really, yeah, thank you so much for uh, for sending that in. Do you think they listened to the Apex tapes in preparation for this?
0: you think they've dug well, those Cass out? Brown wrote both of them. Right, yeah. Um, I don't think he slaved over them. I don't think he went back to look very closely. I think he he stuck with his impressions of the stuff. Right. I'm glad that they do differ. I think more often than not, it, it gives us you know like kind of like that there are two creation stories in the bible that there be also two creation stories in the world of gorillas I like that right yeah and then canonically Junior Dan is the bassist on Soundcheck Gravity which Murdoch is not a fan
1: of. of course he wouldn't be yeah you you'd never you never touch another man's bass
0: okay here's the best one are you ready for the best one Trevor double
1: bass is really good
0: Okay, so the background for this, I love this. I didn't remember this at all, Trevor. It's been too long since I read this book. I had no memory of that. I had no, yeah. Russell bought a a weird microphone with a suction cup on it, and if he sticks it on your head and you think about something, it will translate that thought into music.
1: Right, so Murdoch (laughs) sticks this thing on Tootie's head, and he tells him to imagine a 1950s-based rockabilly Brian Setzer from The Stray Cats knocking back a load of cough syrup (laughs) Then going to a fairground with a couple of mates. Halfway through, Brian's going to start feeling a bit sick because he's now drunk some Jägermeister and the thick, gooey brown liquids making him see things that aren't there. He's trapped in a mad world of fairgrounds visuals and bubbles. Now, when I <laughs> when I listen to Double Base, this is not what I see.
0: No, but I love this so it's much. It's really good. Uh, let's let's we have some young ass listeners. So Brian Setzer, listen. The 1990s were weird. <laughs> For five seconds in the 1990s, everybody decided that swing music was cool. I know that sounds impossible, but there were like several chart-topping hits that were all in the swing genre. There's Zoot Suit Riot by the Cherry Poppin' and Daddies, and then of course, Jump, Jive, and Wail." by uh, by the Brian Setzer Orchestra. So picture like a Rockabilly nineteen twenties Tux and Tails band with like big sideburns and a lot of chest hair doing all of this stuff, and apparently somehow you get double bass.
1: And the classic Stray Cat song is um uh what is it? Rock This Town, right? Can we put a little bit of Rock This Town in here right now? Let's drop a little Let's drop a little let's do a needle yeah. drop real quick
0: i i don't feel the need to cut away but i'm gonna bring it up underneath us all right
1: sure <laughs> this is a good one i remember playing this one in guitar hero 2 all the time when i was like 16.
0: it's got it's got some shredding potential on it doesn't it not a bad song not a bad song let's fade it down now though i do like the fact that that like you pointed out in an earlier episode Canonically, the all of which makes me anxious, uh, spoken interlude is Damon Albarn. Yeah,
1: very cool. Yeah,
0: uh, Rock the House. They they shit on Rock they the House shit over on Rock and the over. House. They
1: shit on Rock the House. Russell even says, "I don't think this one should have been on the album," which is a strange thing to say about one of the last living memories of your soulmate.
0: Very weird. Very weird. But they but nobody likes it. Even people. Even the behind the scenes creators have some shit to say yeah. about. Uh, rock the house later on the album, but I do like that that Murdoch is irritated by the panpipe. That comes up again too. The panpipes. Nineteen two thousand, the keyboard riff was sampled from Two D's alarm clock. I really like that. that cute. That's cute. That's great. Nice little detail. What do you think about the fact that every time Miho Hattori sings on a song, they always mention that her vocals are being mixed with noodles? Because she was
1: originally supposed to be
0: Noodle, wasn't she? Yeah, I just assumed that they would sort of gloss over that, but I guess Cass still wanted to kind of nod his head to Miho, I guess? Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're going to bring Tina Weymouth up, I guess you got to bring up Mio Atari, right?
0: I don't like Murdoch's little joke about the title at the end, where he says, you, you see what we're doing with the title, right? 1998, 1999, 192000. It would be 1998, 1999, 19100, right?
1: Yeah, I guess so. I don't think that joke makes a lot of sense. I thought that was just a little, like... Joke about him explaining the joke, like, yeah, we, we get it. You don't need to explain it.
0: Then Latin Simone, two uh, D likes this one, even though he's not on it. He didn't. His main complaint about Rock the House was that he wasn't on it, <laughs> but he seems to be okay with with ceding the mic to to Ibrahim. How could you not be? It's true. R- rest in peace. Rest in peace. Rest in Abraham, peace, yeah. We love you.
1: Yeah, they do talk about how um they never wrote lyrics for him though. He kind of uh wrote response lyrics and uh to a response to two D's own lyrics, which uh you know we can you can tell just by looking at the lyrics of the song.
0: And then we move on to Starshine. Uh, Murdoch had to use two fingers to play this bass line. <laughs> it was that. so intensive. I liked that. 2D didn't write any lyrics. It just came out. And then at one point, do you think Murdoch's hat legitimately got knocked off by a ghost here? Or is he like trying to make a scene so he can get out of this track-by-track that he's tired of doing.
1: I don't know, but 16-year-old Trevor was also very amused by this part. (laughs) (laughs) You remember yourself going, oh, those wacky gorillas. Something like that, just the way it comes out of nowhere. (laughs) A little bit of random humor, yeah, you know?
0: I like slow country... Murdoch does not enjoy 2D's outro. on am Yeah, concert. Murdoch shits on my favorite part of the song. Fuck off, dude. I love that part of the song, and 2D even says that he didn't realize the mic was on when he was doing that.
1: It's really good. I don't, I don't, I don't get why that's what they have to bring
0: up. And like, you know, yeah, I don't know. Then, then, then they go into M1A1. 2D describes the day in which he made Russell watch all of his favorite zombie movies. I would, I would love to be a fly on the wall for that day. Or
1: I would just love to to read some fanfic
0: about it. That would be great, too. In honor of the late, great George Romero, which we really should have probably been in our news items this week. Oh, yeah. Rest in peace. The loss of an unofficial gorilla. Yeah, throw up a little fic about Russell and 2D's deep discussions about zombie movies. That'd be great.
1: I picked up on what the blue-haired guy was trying to say, so I took the sample. You don't get a lot of you don't get a lot of Russell two D stuff, do you?
0: No, a little bit on here, and this is probably the the biggest highlight moment is this vignette of them watching zombie movies together. Yeah. Noodle says she did the scream in M one A one. What do you make of that?
1: I thought that was definitely interesting. I mean, doesn't doesn't sound like you, Noodle, but okay. Think she could have done a little bit of
0: pitch correction. I do love how Noodle says that she triple tracked the guitars to make it sound like there was a bag full of cats being dragged behind a car.
1: Yeah, this was definitely a very good description of M1A1. It made me want to listen to the song, actually.
0: Awesome. Well, you might get a chance to hear it at the forum. I
1: hope not. I hope not. But, you know, they're sticking to it.
0: Are you ready for a discussion question, Trevor?
1: Yeah, lay it on me. We haven't had one of those in a good five or six minutes, have we?
0: If the cow says moo and the horse says nay, does the gorilla say want some?
1: So next is Unleashed the Beast. Uh, Tomorrow comes today where they talk about uh, filming the first music video.
0: With help from a new collaborator, Gorillas shoot the video for Tomorrow Comes Today and release a promo for the song.
1: And that new collaborator is Jamie Hewlett, who we also get a childhood picture of here. Here's um, here's my discussion question for this one. Who's a cuter child, Damon Auburn or Jamie Hewlett?
0: Oh, Jamie, in my opinion, is cuter. I think Jamie's cuter. Yeah. We also meet Paolo Skinbaccio, who's a self-styled legendary Italian director slash crazy person. And we'll... <laughs> We'll visit him every now and then Here, Here's where where this comes up This idea of these, these tertiary Lore characters that I love That they exist in this book, you know what I mean? It's good world building I love it, I love it, it just makes the universe feel more alive to me And these
1: could have been characters in the movie, who
0: knows I do love how at the end they like Have a little pull quote of Dan the Automator talking about what he thinks Tomorrow Comes Day is about And then Murdoch says, I'm not being funny But could you like stop talking to Dan Nakamura <laughs> I got a genuine laugh there. Uh, Here's my discussion question. It's mentioned that Murdoch injured his back shortly before shooting the Tomorrow Comes Today video. Is that why he doesn't move during it?
1: I mean, they're definitely all looking a bit stiff, right?
0: Um, Subheading, virtual crack for the stereo. Summary, gorillas get their first magazine cover story, trashed the offices of that magazine or was it Jamie Hewlett and then get a very nice write-up of their album from a journalist Uh, discussion question. Why is this a chapter in the book? Why is there a whole section about a magazine article that they had?
1: Remember when I told you I there were parts where I just had to start skimming. This is definitely, I mean, because we saw this already. This was in charts of darkness. This is one of those parts of the book where I have to reiterate, (laughs) this isn't for me. It's not bad, but this isn't for me. This is for People who, like, do not have an extensive—I mean, you know, it's also for completionists, but—
0: If you want to jerk off about this article so bad, then why don't you just <laughs> scan it and put it in the book, you know?
1: We get um, the exact same quote about um, Russell wanting to smear burgers on the wall, and one of them wanting to throw a TV through uh, the window. And when the guy came in the next morning, there were burgers smeared on the wall and stuff. If you listen to our DVDs episode, you've you've heard this stuff before.
0: Why? Maybe it's just because they didn't want to go directly from the Tomorrow Comes Today video to the Clint Eastwood video. They it's wanted possible. something to split it up. Was this where gorillas were, or was
1: this where gorillas were really first introduced to the public? So this next chapter is where I get
0: introduced to them. Okay, yeah. Uh, subheading: Clint Eastwood. Summary: Gorillas shoot the epic Clint Eastwood video, get remixed by Ed Case, and sell a bunch of singles in the UK. Um, there's two sort of lore-building characters we meet. We meet Florence, who's a Jewish New York gorilla slash choreographer, right? Who choreographed the. Uh, what she called The Undead Zombie Ape Shuffle in mm-hmm. the Clint Eastwood video. The take on the thriller dance. The take on the thriller dance. But she says that it's it's, it's its own thing and she's been doing it for years. Right. And then we meet the middle row crew who is a, a band of cutlass wielding pirates who do
1: two-step remixes. <laughs> and they are responsible for the uh, Ed, Case, Ed Case refix.
0: So this is where I discover, this is where I jump on board with this project. And that brings me to my discussion question, Trevor. Okay. Do you think that Jamie Hewlett can be given more credit for breaking gorillas through to the mainstream than Damon Auburn can.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: It sort of feels like sometimes Jamie Hewlett is treated like the secondary collaborator, or the secondary leader of the band, you know? Like, it's sort of, but, well, it's really Damon's thing, and then Jamie's there too. But you have to remember, back in 2001, like, we wouldn't be looking at this project being what it is today if it wasn't for that Clint Eastwood video.
1: Absolutely not. No, Jamie is what makes gorillas what they are. I, I wouldn't be doing a podcast on a couple great Damon Auburn records, but no. But I'm doing a podcast about this project that Jamie Hewlett's art just elevated to an entirely different level and turned into something completely different.
0: This 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 chapter just kind of, like, struck it home for me, like, yeah. man, this dude deserves so much more credit for everything. <laughs> I
1: mean, if Damon Auburn had recorded The Gorilla Self-Titled and it was just, you know, Damon Auburn's solo project or something like that, would have been cool. But it also would have been written off as a total novelty, I think. I agree. He doesn't get the recognition for that, I don't think.
0: And I think that, that there's a probably an element of the of the band's fan base that that the music has always been secondary to them. That they are really fans of the characters and the lore. And and I hope I know that some of them are in our listening audience. I hope that they're feeling serviced by this season of our podcast, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I hope so too. And I mean I cannot stress how essential this book is for People who love that kind of stuff, like, for sure, this is a treasure trove.
0: Subheading: Night of the Living Dead, the London Scala. Uh, summary: Gorillas rehearse for their first big show. Tootie and Murdoch sample the fruits of their newfound fame. Gorillas play behind the screen in Scala. The press hates it. The album comes out, and uh, Murdoch's Winnebago is stolen. And of course, Trevor. In this, uh, in this chapter, we meet the infamous Dr. Wurzel. Right, before that, uh, this
1: chapter kind of starts out with a cool behind-the-stage um, shot of uh, girls warming up, and there's, uh, as Murdoch describes it, some tramp strolled in and dropped his trousers. You see a photo of somebody mooning the camera. Is that Damon? Oh, for sure that's Damon. Of course it is. I thought I recognized those cheeks somewhere.
0: They also really harp on this one review they got in The Independent, and they, they talk about how the person who wrote it is fat, and nobody likes their writing, and I and I googled those poll quotes, but I couldn't find it archived anywhere, so I don't know who it was.
1: Yeah, one chubby, man-breasted, clown-haired gonk writing for The Independent made a particularly embittered attack against Damon Albarn, calling gorillas a failed scam, and suggested that one day, in 2003, Albarn will awake and involuntarily double up into a fetal position, with shame at the memory.
0: I guess we, we don't have proof that that didn't happen.
1: Now, that would have been during the Think Tank recording sessions, I believe.
0: Uh, I do love the Murdoch quote. Uh, accusing of, us of being a gimmick is a bit like accusing Jesus Christ of having a bit of a Messiah complex. I like that. Right, yeah. And this is where we uh,
1: get the only known picture of Dr. Wurzel, Gorilla's antagonist. But yeah, Dr. Wurzel, he's a creepy-looking dude. He's got a big blue kind of clown wig on. He's got a blue bow tie, and his the top half of his face is pink.
0: And he's got a creepy smile. I have a discussion question for you, Trevor.
1: Is it how psyched was I to read this stuff about the Winnebago all over again? <laughs> yeah, scale of one to a million. We get a whole page about Murdoch's Winnebago.
0: Do you remember, do you remember that the, the enhanced CD-ROM of the, of the first Gorillas album had the keys to Murdoch's Winnebago? That's what they're referencing here? I remember getting though. yeah. You could unlock it, and I don't remember what all was in there. It was like some wallpapers. Wallpapers
1: and stuff, yeah, that kind of thing. You know, real 2001-era bonus content.
0: (laughs) Yeah, nothing too exciting. Yeah. If there had only been one Gorillaz album, how would we think about this project today?
1: Like I said, um, talking about how if Jamie Hewlett wasn't part of the project, total novelty.
0: It would have been like when Garth Brooks made an album as Chris Gaines. When he made a rock and roll album as the dark haired rock and roll star, Chris Gaines.
1: Sure. Something like that. Or I mean, you could even just look to Damon Albarn's other projects like the good, the bad and the queen,
0: which I love.
1: I love that. Album I love that a lot. too. Yeah. I, I mean, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find some Damon Albarn content. I don't enjoy, but
0: rocket juice on the moon. Isn't great. <laughs> yeah. We'll be reviewing it someday. Oh my God. We finished a chapter. That was a
1: long one. About seventy-five pages into the book, right now
0: we're now at chapter four: Gorillas on the March. Uh, the summary of this little introduction section: Cass Brown, uh, oh, I mean, uh, gorillas, rehash five-year-old <laughs> album reviews in excruciating detail, picking old fights and grudges, and meanwhile, the self-titled uh, sells very well in the UK. Now, this part of this stretch was interminable for me. Fuck this stuff, man! This is uh, my number one complaint of Rise of the Ogre: is that there's so much nitpicking over old negative reviews like it just feels so weird and petty and like bitter and like why do you care about your press I mean it would be very different if this was being written by a third party but this is like an internal piece of band mythology it would also be it would also be a lot more tolerable if it was just fun to read but it's so not it's the same it's yeah. the same Basic general complaint over and over again from journalists, which is like, yeah. this this concept is dumb, and we we're don't not like a
1: gimmick, it. we're not a marketing ploy. Just over and over and over. I do like this quote from 2D though. This is freaking me out a little actually. Was I born a
0: gimmick, or did I become one? <laughs> That's good. And I also love Cass Brown giving himself like a meta shout out as Russell when he says, "We had to do so many interviews. I kind of wish we just got someone to write them while we concentrated on the music." <laughs>
1: That was pretty good, yeah.
0: Cash Brown winking at himself there. Um, here's a discussion question for you, Trevor. What do you think makes the virtual aspect of Gorillas such a deal-breaker for some journalists and some listeners?
1: I feel like, you know, cartoons give a sense of, almost make it seem a little juvenile. I mean, it's kind of like, do you want to watch? Uh, do you want to watch Breaking Bad and The Wire, or do you want to watch uh, Steven Universe?
0: Right, and the Steven Universe is an amazing show, but you have to be Very, somebody who ve- sort of
1: such a good show. Yeah, such a good show. I mean, but you know, because it's animated and it seems like you
0: know it's for kids. I think it's 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 sort of you know how there's like people who are secure with their sexuality there's also like people who are secure with their adulthood yeah if you're not secure with your if you're a heterosexual man who's not secure with himself you might be like oh i can't listen to lady gaga because i'm straight and if you're not secure with your adulthood you might be like oh i can't listen to gorillas because they're for kids or whatever like that you know what i mean i think that would also explain
1: why at least temporarily i think gorillas fans kind of fall off when they reach like their early 20s
0: maybe yeah, because they have to leave the nest and they have to seem cool and old. Yeah, but once you kind of
1: establish, uh, once you kind of grow into adulthood a little more, I think you have a much easier time going back to these things and accepting them and accepting what you like. I think that's very astute, Trevor. I think Hallelujah Monkeys is like the thesis of that.
0: <laughs> it kind of is. We're two old, old men admitting well, that we love cartoons. Well, you're, you, are. you only get one old. I'm an
1: old, old man yeah. and you're an old yeah. man. So then we talk about them uh, playing uh, Paris and Dublin shows.
0: <laughs> yeah. Summary: Gorillas play concerts in Paris and Dublin. <laughs> Here's a discussion question: uh, What's your favorite fruit, Trevor?
1: Um, which whichever one, uh, whichever one I was eating while I just skimmed my way all through this chapter.
0: <laughs> nothing happens in this chapter. No. Uh, for the record, I like
1: grapes. I mean strawberries. Strawberries are one of my favorite food in general.
0: Subheading: Gorillas released in America. Summary. After Cass Brown nitpicks a few more negative reviews, Murdoch strongarms EMI into printing more copies of the album, but it still sells out, and America goes bananas for gorillas. Nice little, nice little pun you worked in there. I, I distinctly remember this release weekend. Uh, I remember going to Suncoast with my dad uh, and and picking up my copy, not knowing that it was going to have that cool camo pattern on the disc. Right, I was like. Oh man, camo, just like the just like the long cargo shorts that I like to wear.
1: <laughs> the dream of camo was alive in the early 2000s, wasn't it?
0: It sure was.
1: Of course, of course camo camo would take on a whole new whole new context just one year later. I still the aesthetic of Phase One girls is still kind of like a stumbling block to me sometimes. It seems like just a little too cool
0: you know well it's also very much a product of his time what about that like orange shirt with with little hexagons on it that russell wears sometimes that is so you know early 2000s futurism look at an nsync video from this era and you'll see a lot of the same kind of ridiculousness
1: strangely enough i think this was the only phase of the project to suffer from being dated i mean i don't get those kind of vibes at all from uh demon days or anything like that
0: No, I agree, and I think it's because the main difference is uh, the world wasn't changed forever by a horrible international tragedy. Sure, that probably does does work into it somehow, huh? (laughs) Um, I do have a discussion question for you. Uh, Why do you think it was that the U.S. was more receptive to the lore and idea of a virtual band than any other market?
1: I think the U.K. kind of has a reputation for being a little more cynical. I don't know, it makes sense to me that people in America were kind of, especially pre-9-11, were... Willing to open up their arms and embrace something so kind of weird and bubbly and a little more gimmicky, you know. We, we, we Americans, we like we like bright, flashing things. You know what I mean? We we we, we go in for this kind of stuff.
0: The narrative voice of of music journalism in the UK versus the US is also very different. That's true. In the US, like the voice of the of the common music journalist, he's very like referential, and it it seems like he's sort of. Flipping through this grimoire of deep cut references, you know, like, well, this is this is like the if Joy Division met such and such, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then. In Britain, it's kind of this kind of, well, look who's back with another so-and-so. It's like much more sassy sardonic over there. I don't think that that sassy journalistic tone is a good match for Gorillaz, probably. Absolutely not. I think that the heady approach of American music journalists works better, where they can be like, this draws on a great lineage started by the Archies. (laughs) They reminded me of Josie and the
1: Pussycats. So one part I really, something I really enjoyed reading here is... uh The cutting-edge, groundbreaking novelty act gorillas were asked to advertise or put their name to every product under the sun, from soft drinks, (laughs) wristwatches, tanks, and snowshoes to egg timers, (laughs) Harry Hill, bazookas, and diving cleats. Nothing seemed to be deemed too outlandish or inappropriate for this unusual and fascinating group. Although almost universally... These offers were rejected, some quite forcefully.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I wonder. I wonder what changed.
1: Definitely not in. <laughs> definitely not in 2001 anymore. For better and for worse.
0: Trevor subheading 192000 summary. Gorillas shoot the video for 192000, which is recapped by Cass Brown in excruciating detail.
1: I did like the wacky races parallel. I never really drew those myself before.
0: Yeah, I like that, too. And and Dick Dastardly as Murdoch makes a lot of sense. And I do like the opening quote of, as, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be in Wacky Races.
1: If Murdoch is Dick Dastardly, does that make 2D Muttley?
0: Oh, absolutely, right? I like that a lot. The, his, his sniggering cohort? I would go sure. in for
1: an entire Gorillas episode of the TV show. Like, just do straight up Wacky Racers episode.
0: I do like the... the the idea that the CGI cutaways in the 192000 video are actually the moments when their stunt doubles yes. gotten in the geep? Vi- in
1: yeah. Interesting quote from Jamie here, though. Uh, because of the switch in single, I think we were already a month into the time we had to make the 192000 video, so I had to come up with a new idea on the spot. Do we know if that's true? Was the 192000 video kind of a rushed product?
0: Well, I think that that the timeline is definitely true, and he claims that that because of Tank Girl. He was very comfortable storyboarding chase sequences, and that's why the idea seemed like something he could bang out quicker than other things. This video seems more complicated and kinetic, and seems like it would take a long time to to concept, but I guess that's just a peek inside of Jamie's genius and what things come easy to him. Right. Perhaps less uh, illuminating is Jamie Hewlett's (laughs) claiming that the giant moose is a metaphor for getting hung up creatively by distractions,
1: I believe it's an elk, and that doesn't really work as well as the whole zombie stuffed up uh, our chimney flues metaphor does it?
0: Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so. In fact, I got a discussion question for you. What is a clumsier gorilla's metaphor? Your rhinestone eyes are like factories far away, or this three hundred foot elk represents obstructions to the creative process? <laughs> is the first one even a metaphor? Like um yeah rhinestone eyes are a metaphor yeah i guess and then the second part of it is a simile it's very clunky though yeah 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 uh yeah i don't know that's just it's just the problem with that chapter for me trevor is that it's beat by beat Cass brown just types out everything that happens in the gorillas video
1: i skimmed this part yeah just kind of it's definitely a lot of stuff for a video that I don't find myself coming back to that frequently.
0: I do like the video. I do think it's charming, but I don't know. I don't know about reading. I don't need the official I don't need the official novelization no. of the gorillas
1: video. No. Next they go to Japan.
0: Yes. Subheading I've been around the world, but I've never been to me. Quote Noodle. Summary. Gorillas play a string of shows in Japan to a head scratching response. A restless noodle feels melancholic and transient. And G Sides is released to a footnote-sized ovation. They barely talk about it in this book, Trevor. Yeah. I
1: did like this sequence, though, for some reason. Like, I like the description of the weird shows they played. This was our first ever gig in Japan. The concert promoter headed the audience into the center of the room and then surrounded them with a cattle pen. The gig was just mental. But weirdly, these kids just stopped dead at the end of each song and politely clapped. Apart from one kid who threw some cabbage at Murdoch.
0: Yeah, except for the cabbage at Murdoch, but I'm pretty sure all of that's true. In fact, every time you hear a Western band Trevor give like a trip report of their first ever Japan gig, they always kind of tell the same story. Like getting cabbage thrown at them? No, everybody got herded into like a little roped off area. They all stood very still. They all were very quiet. They clapped very politely. Like that's that seems to be everybody's trip report. For playing a gig in Japan. Hmm. The stuff I actually like here is is the the deepening of the noodle character, Trevor. Right.
1: This is the first time we really dive into her a little bit.
0: Yeah, I like this idea of her being, you know, without a home, without a family, and it's starting to sink in as she emotionally matures on the road. This stuff works well for me and I and I like all the stuff that we get around that. Uh, in this book about noodle, yeah, uh, I got a discussion question for you, Trevor. Okay. Aside from Ghost Train and the Sounder, none of the G sides get any lore. Can you come up with an in-universe backstory for one of the unsung G sides of your choosing? This
1: is one that you uh, kind of gave me ahead of time, just so I'd have time to think about it. I think. Um, yeah. I was I was thinking about which one I want, and I went for um, one, two, D, three. Oh, cool. I can just picture them needing one more song to kind of pad out this uh, this release. And Murdoch coming up with that by just uh, turning on the microphone while they were kind of practicing and warming up, and Two D was doing his like vocal exercises, and Murdoch being like, "Yeah, see, we were at the height of our powers." And Anything we uh, anything we recorded was just solid gold. So I thought let's let's just record some garbage and turn it into like uh, something that we can use to finish song this album. You know,
0: <laughs> I love that. And then he probably also says something like, "I sang the harmony on this one. Look, listen to my voice. I, yeah. I could be the lead singer of this band." So do, you, like do that. you have one? Uh, I didn't come up with one, but here I'll freestyle one right now. Hip albatross. The day that uh, that Russell and 2D watched all those zombie films together. He started uh, looping some dialogue into, into his hip-hop machine, and the band sort of formed around it and started to do a little jam, and it was cut together from that.
1: See, that was the second one I was going to go for, and I had, this, um, I had this image of them sitting on that rooftop uh, in Jamaica again, noodle just kind of, forgive me for the pun, noodling around on her guitar, and maybe they would have started picking up some kind of, I mean, like, in this universe where it's not a... Uh, Don't of the Dead sample, which I, you know, I technically guess it is, but maybe they would have started picking up some kind of helicopter transmission on the radio or something and decided to include
0: that as a sample. Oh, that's fun. I kind of like that, too. Yeah. Subheading. Award. Take me to A. Ward. Summary. Gorillas say fuck off to the Mercury Prize. MTV2 says fuck off to gorillas. And MTV Europe says, we've been liking gorillas. Use our friend
1: so I didn't know this happened. This is real. This really happened, Trevor. I know. I for- completely forgot. They were nominated for the Mercury Prize, and then they recorded just a little little skit of them going like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks.
0: And genuinely, they were the considered to be the frontrunners for the Mercury Prize, too. So do you think that's true, that they
1: just wanted to avoid it because, like— mercury prize winners kind of go on to have lackluster careers or what what was going on here
0: i think that i think that at that time the attitude of of damon and jamie was a lot more punk rock than it is today i think that they were like more into the idea of saying fuck you to establishment things like that and uh and so if you don't know the mercury prize is like this long-standing uk tradition it's for the best british album of the year right and and there is kind of like a, a curse of the Mercury Prize where some people get it and then they go on to, like, really bad careers afterwards. Uh-huh. I think it came genuinely from from Damon being like, oh, fuck that, fuck that. I think it was really—and they accepted the withdrawal. They withdrawed them from competition because Murdoch Nichols said he, did, he wasn't interested in being nominated.
1: Now, who won the Mercury Prize that year?
0: P.J. Harvey won that oh, year. Oh, right, yeah, okay. I was—was was, was, was uh, Roots maneuver also up for it? I don't know if he was up that year. I don't think he won, uh, but he was a nominee for like 2004,
2: maybe.
1: I feel like it might have made sense for that year, but maybe not because um in the in the little clip they put together where the band turns it down, 2D is wearing a Rootsmanuva t shirt. I do like that. That's yeah. cool. Yeah.
0: Also, later in this uh, chapter, Trevor, when <laughs> when they failed to win an MTV2 award at the MTV Video Music Awards, that I guess somebody, a producer, had like. Tipped off Damon and Jamie, they were probably going to win, so they like spent twenty thousand pounds making an acceptance speech uh, video for it. Murdoch, like in in universe, flipped his lid about this terrible new metal group uh, of the era called Mudvayne. Right? Do we want
1: to do we want to do a little needle drop with a Mudvayne song real quick? Can we can we get that on the? Uh... Ladies and gentlemen,
0: Dig by Mudbane, which I'm also not going to stop the show. It's just playing underneath us right
1: now. And I can't even comment on this one because I'm pretty sure I've never heard it.
0: Oh, I remember this because I was constantly watching MTV2 trying to see the Clint Eastwood video at this time.
1: Maybe when I listen back to this episode after you've spliced it in, I'll go, oh, that song. But yeah, as of now, I've got nothing.
0: They're kind of like forerunners to Slipknot, or maybe Slipknot was already around at this time, but they they all had like a silly makeup thing going on. Interesting. One of them was blue, and one of them was red, and not great. Certainly doesn't hold up, and that, I watched a little of that video. It's very silly. Here's a discussion question. One of the MTV Euro awards that Gorillas were awarded was for Best Dance. Knowing what we now know, shouldn't that award have been given to Florence, the New York Jewish choreographer, Gorilla?
1: I guess so, yeah, but I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen a... I mean, I guess this is the first time we've seen Gorillas not really giving credit where it's due. You know what I mean? We know what happened—the Rosie Wilson Dare debacle.
0: I know that's true, and every now and then, you know, even Damon Albarn tries to step in and take credit yeah. for the band's hard work. So yeah. this is this is a, this is a problem. This is a real problem in the Gorillaz project. Definitely. A subheading: The British dates summary. Gorillas go on tour, shout out their favorite fan site, and endlessly pick away at old negative press once again.
1: I couldn't believe the Gorillas' unofficial set. shout out. I had I could not remember this being in here, and it is so weird to read this.
0: I was a staff member of GU. Yeah. Do you think it was me? Was I the person who broke into Murdoch Nichols' uh, bedroom to watch him and take notes? Was it better, me?
1: Better question. Will there be two paragraphs devoted to Halloween monkeys" when we eventually get this uh, get the sequel to this book?
0: That would be that'd be amazing. But I, it was funny reading that and trying to imagine like which which Gorilla's unofficial staff member canonically broke into Murdoch Nichols' bedroom. It was
1: James, absolutely James.
0: Yeah, it was James McClellan, right?
1: I, I love uh, I love this noodle quote. I think Tootie only discovered that his own original surname was Tuspot from Gorillas Unofficial. It is every fact, figure, and detail of all things gorillas. Nice little shout-out, though, because that dude did work really fucking hard.
0: He was running like a, a CNN-level 24-hour <laughs> news network about gorillas at the time. Uh, discussion question. If and when Jamie's long-held dream of a Gorilla's holographic motion capture tour becomes a reality, is it going to get a similar shrug from the press the way that the that playing behind screens got a shrug? I mean,
1: does the press even care about Gorilla's live performances anymore? That's a good question, but
0: I think something that high-tech would at least get write-ups. I think we'd say a Pitchfork article on that. Oh, for sure, a Pitchfork article. But, I mean, I you know, I, I imagine that there would be, like, Spin would do something and and Rolling Stone would do something. I just wonder if if they'll be more charmed by that than they were by the screens or if they'll be like, this isn't a real show. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to see. We finish another chapter! <laughs> they seem to be
1: getting longer and longer. Or is that just me? <laughs>
0: they they sure do, Trevor. All right. Let's 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 barrel forward. Chapter five: A storm is brewing. Subheading: Gorillas in D12, featuring Terry Hall in 911. Summary: Two planes hit the World Trade Center in New York. Murdoch goes on a bender. D12 can't get home, but everyone has fun making a neat little song together. Anyway, I I pulled some quotes of the band reacting to the September 11th attacks. Sure, Trevor. yeah. Two uh, D says it really took the air out of my lungs. Russell says a lot of terrible seeds were sown that day. Uh, Noodle says attacking other cultures is a self-destructive act. And Murdoch says, "Can we get back to all the slapstick stuff?" What do you What do you make of this? This little interlude of the band talking about the the attacks. I mean,
1: I was a little surprised to see nine one one featured in this book so prevalently to begin with.
0: It was. I like that it is. Me I do too. Like that yeah, it
1: because it is such kind of a little bit of a lost chapter in the girl's girl's story.
0: It gets more print than the whole of G sides.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say. So it's definitely interesting to have uh, have the band's reaction to the um, event that kind of spurred it on and turned the song into what it would be. I think
0: it. I think. I think it's nice. It'll probably seem more in place once we next week. Once we get through the second half of the. The book, because I, if I remember correctly, we're going to be talking about the state of the world a little bit more uh, right. in the second half of this book, and it's
1: apt that this chapter is called uh, "A Storm Is Brewing," I guess, because this does really foreshadow where the band would uh, where the band would go from here.
0: Uh, discussion question, Trevor: I want to hear your pitch for a second Gorillaz album in a carefree world where the events of nine eleven never happened.
1: This was I was thinking about this one. What it would sound like, kind of. I I think they might and
0: like, have. What's the What's the lore? <laughs>
1: I wasn't even thinking about lore. What would they do on a second album that's not about a post 9-11 world? I think it would probably, it probably might've looked like the direction where Massive Attack went. I'm sure the, I'm sure the focus would have still been on collaborating. I think maybe a bit of a more
0: electronic sound. Do you think they would have like dug their heels in about like, we're taking down disposable pop culture? Do you think that would have been like, because between, between, Album one and album two, we did have like the rise of the American Idol, Pop Idol, X Factor thing.
1: That's true. And we saw that a little bit in the search for a star running thing they did in phase two. Maybe that
0: would have played a larger part. Yeah, maybe maybe they would have been like, you know, we're gonna hold contest to hire a fifth gorilla.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. But really, who knows? I can't imagine this band
0: without nine eleven. It's very hard to imagine. It'd be so different. It'd be so different. They might have just been one and done. They might have not bothered. Who knows? Yeah, who knows. Uh, subheading: Rock the House. Summary: The label twists the band's arm into choosing a third single. Jamie Hewlett gets sued by doppelgangers, and a somewhat confusing video is made. Quote from Murdoch: Panpipes. Jamie Hewlett not a fan of Rock the House.
1: No, Rock the House just generally gets un- unfavorable write-up in this book.
0: Okay, I got something kind of uncomfortable to talk about with you, Trevor. Okay. This this whole doppelgangers business is a coded way of talking about an actual lawsuit? I was wondering.
1: I was like, what the fuck is this shit?
0: Okay, so let me bring you into the world of a little band that never was called Monkey Tennis.
1: I vaguely remember this.
0: There was an unnamed party, we still don't know the name of this guy, who came up with the idea of a cartoon band called Monkey Tennis. Now, it's not clear if his idea was like, To legitimately release singles, it actually seems like he was more, like, going to be, like, a ringtone-based thing. Like, you know, do you remember Crazy Frog? I do remember Uh, Crazy Frog. Imagine that, but an animated band called Monkey Tennis. Do I have Um, to? Yeah, you do. Cuz right. we're we're going somewhere here. He hired a guy named Kevin Saunders to write the bio for the band and uh for for the look of the band to design the characters. He des- he he decided to hire an artist by the name of Jamie
1: Hewlett. Ooh, interesting. So, got a little bit of a social network thing going on, huh? A little bit, a huh.
0: little bit. So, 1996, 1997, Jamie Hewlett gets hired to design an animated band. And that one was called Monkey Tennis. <laughs> And then by 1999, he and David Albarn have an animated band called Gorillas. Uh So he sued Jamie for stealing his idea, and it seems like what happened is that they, they settled out of court, and then there was a gag order for both parties, and this, this doppelganger's business was kind of his way of skirting that gag order. Why include it at all? Why is this in the book? Good question, but Kevin Saunders, the writer... He later dumped everything because he didn't have a gag order. Kevin Saunders could say whatever he wanted. Right. He dumped all the character designs and bios online. So if you if you Google "monkey tennis Saunders" or "Hewlett," you'll see those character designs. They're they're interesting looking. They're gorillas ish, I guess, in the sense that all Jamie Hewlett art is kind of gorillas ish, but. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I gotta
1: say, when you said you were going to bring up something that made me uncomfortable, I wasn't actually expecting it to. But yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. That's
0: kind of... Okay, here's my discussion question that'll help us tear this apart a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Okay? Is the idea of an animated band novel enough to be theftable in a legal sense? Even if in the spirit of things, maybe there was a bit of ripping off... Is there any court that would have said this is enough of a of a thievery job that you owe this guy some of your money? I mean the whole monkey gorilla thing, right? That's that's a little shameless. It's a little bit striking, yeah. but I feel like there's the neither of these guys were the first to the party. There were too many examples of, of the fucking California raisins I mean, and the monkeys. Yeah, the Archie band and Banana and, splits. And p- Josie and the Pussycats. There, there's a great lineage of all of the stuff, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I feel like what Gorillas went on to do with it, it they don't owe anything to this guy because they Absolutely certainly not, made no. it. They certainly made it their own thing. But I always kind of saw the name Gorillas as being this play on the Monkeys. Of course, you know the Monkeys being this manufactured band, with misspelled version of the Monkeys, and so you know. But this kind of, I don't know. I do feel weird about it.
1: Yeah, monkey tennis.
0: Monkey tennis. Huh? I don't know. What do you guys think? Write it right into us at uh, howlermonkeys at gmail dot com. Are you completely disillusioned with this band now? Are you done? Are you quitting Gorillas forever? So then we get um we get a
1: very long kind of beat by beat thing about rock the house, kind of almost in the same vein we got for nineteen
0: two thousand. Yeah, a lot of talking about Mister Freedom, the movie that inspired it. Love that sketch of Dallas, Mister Freedom. Really cool. Oh, made me wish that that they hadn't done the CG model. Made me wish that they had. Yeah, that they had traditionally animated him.
1: That would have been cool.
0: I also like that little enemy photo shoot of of Jamie Hewlett and and Damon Albarn on the set of the Rock the House video with their like. Yeah, that faces all fucked up. We're getting into the back section of this, so let's let's push forward, Trevor. Uh, are real? Are we only like halfway done? We're only like halfway done, aren't we? No, 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 no. <laughs> we're, this episode, we're 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 getting there, dude. We're getting there. We still got to go to Hollywood. We still got to go to Hollywood. <laughs> we do subheading, Gorilla Bites summary. Gorillas make some sketches and send them out to TV stations, and 2D finds religion.
1: Here we talk about um. Here we here we learn the um origin of the eel, kind of.
0: Yeah, I buy this. I. Think that Jamie actually had a chef friend who did this. I like the yeah. idea that that's true.
1: Murdoch says a mate of mine, who's a chef, was working in this place and couldn't kill this eel, which was meant to be cooking for the lunch menu. The head chef came in with a stinking hangover, grabbed the eel, and shoved its face into the gas. And that's how you kill an eel, apparently, melt its face.
0: I like the idea that that's a legit story. That like. A mate of Jamie's told him once, and it just stuck in his head
1: for years. Absolutely, you know? yeah, would not be surprised at all.
0: Uh, and then we talk about uh, how oh, each of them cost sixty thousand pounds to make, so that's, uh, that's that ain't nothing. That ain't nothing. Yeah,
1: I mean, guys, put it towards a music video.
0: <laughs> I do love that we have these gorilla bites. I would I wouldn't get rid of them for sure. Can you think of? Here's my discussion question:
1: What's a band that you would like to see do their own bites?
0: Oh, boy. Yeah, like really super in-character where they all play exaggerated versions of themselves. Um, yeah, yeah. Boy, you know, it, right off the right off the bat, wouldn't it be hilariously awkward to see Radiohead try to do this? They were my first ones, too, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. what would that even be? Uh, it'd be Phil Selway grabbing, <laughs> grabbing Tom York by the neck and shaking him. <laughs> my eye doesn't drift like that. Yeah, it does look. I'm sorry. That was
1: mean. That was mean. Nobody, nobody's taking care of Tom York.
0: Nobody's taking care of Tom York, Trevor. Uh, I have a discussion question, Trevor. Do you believe in God? No. I think I do.
1: Is this going somewhere? Why? What? What girl is Epiphany? Have you had that has made you believe in God?
0: Well, because you know, two D found Buddhism, and I thought we should check in with ourselves spiritually.
1: Okay. Um, here's a question. They show, a little, um, they show some uh, screenshots from Fancy Dress. I noticed here Murdoch's Nazi armband is a smiley face. Is it a swastika in the actual video? I
0: think it's a swastika in the video. I think maybe there were two versions. Do they even mention in this chapter why that one was held back? I don't think they do. Um, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe they mention it Uh, subheading, Charts of Darkness Summary Channel 4 makes a serious documentary about gorillas The band wraps up their UK tour And Murdoch throws a massive New Year's Eve party
1: Reading this stuff about Charts of Darkness Really, I don't know, I thought it was really funny Because there's a paragraph in here that, um, kind of Sums up Charts of Darkness In, I believe, like, the exact words we used In our podcast episode <laughs> <laughs> It says, uh the four actual members of Gorillas all refused to be involved in a film that was seen from the start as playfully puckish, but ultimately a waste of time. It does remain, however, a wonderful, if somewhat draining, piece of work. If you've got 22 minutes to kill, give it a glance. Really, just like, I like that
0: it had both of our it had both of our perspectives in there. I know
1: I know a real glowing review that they give this product that they made themselves, all right, yeah, it's fun, but it's ultimately pointless.
0: it's great. It's boring. I was like, yeah, that's what we said. a wonderful, if somewhat draining piece of work, yeah, yeah, which
1: sums up a lot of the gorillas' extra material, I think.
0: I have a discussion question for you, Trevor. Uh, this chapter brings back Paulo Scambascio, the, the fired original director of the Tomorrow Comes Today video. Do you think that like the doppelgangers, Paulo is like an in-universe analog for a real-life person that they want to badmouth without getting in trouble? And could other in-universe characters and events be serving that purpose.
1: I am absolutely 100% certain.
0: Right? Because why else would they be bringing him back and making mention that he was at this one specific show and, like, why was he there and making fun of him and stuff? In fact, the more
1: we get into that, the more you're bringing this to my attention, it almost seems like they were rubbing their hands while writing this, going like, (laughs) alright, who are we finally gonna stick it to? (laughs) Like, Rise of the Ogre is, is this, like, subtweets the book? Which is weird, because now a kind of negative energy is seeping into this thing.
0: Is that just me? I know. I feel it, too, dude. I feel it, too. Yeah. You know what else I feel? That we've gotten to the last chapter of the episode. (laughs) Really? Yes. Chapter 6, The Rubber Mallet of the Gods. Uh, subheading: Brit Awards 2002 summary. Gorillas are nominated for six awards. A state-of-the-art CGI live performance of Clint Eastwood is debuted. Uh, Murdoch has an incestuous threesome with pop star sisters, and Gorillas loses six awards. This is the second time we hear from uh, Karis Bellar from from Zombie Flush Eaters. Uh, right. Who does like 3D animation She seems really genuine And she talks about animation with like a really natural Sense of storytelling Trevor yeah, We yeah. need to get this fucking lady on our podcast We need to get this lady on our podcast I think of all the zombie flesh eaters people I'm singling her out We need to get Kara Speller On Hallelujah Monkeys
1: Kara if you're listening come be on the show
0: We definitely want to talk to you And then there's that whole thing about Kylie and Danny Minogue and, uh, and Murdoch you know Having a having a nasty tryst with them. My dad loves Kylie Minogue. I forgot that Danny Minogue was a person. I don't know who that is. That's her sister and another. I think she also had a hit.
1: Kind of a Beyonce and Solange situation
0: going on there. Yeah, yeah, but you know, Solange is now like the nerd's Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, discussion question: What is your favorite Gorillas live visual?
1: The uh, Dracula one, I think. That's just the gorilla oh, yeah, the walking big. towards the. Uh, I like that one a lot.
0: That one's great. Where is that, by the way? That wasn't on. No, I think it is on Celebrity Takedown, isn't it? I I didn't see it. Well, in any case, it's on the official Gorillas YouTube channel now, so you can watch it. Okay, there. Okay, cool. Got to go back and relive that. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the broke the broken one. I like the little dance during the broken video. Oh
1: yeah, that one is cool. I forgot about Phase Three. That Gorilla one though, I could I, I'd be down for that as like a screensaver or something.
0: Or how about also let's shout out fire coming out of the monkey's head because I think that one's pretty sick too
1: oh yeah definitely that would be i don't know why i just kept going back to phase one fire coming out of the monkey's head would be my favorite by the way can we talk about how they sound checked that
0: recently holy shit
1: what are they gonna do (laughs) like you brought up you brought up fire coming out of the monkey's head featuring ben mendelsdorf i would die. oh yeah i would die get
0: ben Mendelssohn out there and say and say okay here's the pitch there's the happy volk and then the strange folk, and there's a mountain called Monkey. At the end, everybody dies. And see what he does. And see what he does. <laughs> Just go. <sighs> okay. Subheading, the North American Tour 2002. This is the longest chapter in the book, Trevor. Summary. Uh, After Murdoch is arrested in the U.S. and posts bail, gorillas suffer through technical difficulties in Toronto and chaos and flatulence on the tour bus. Uh, Russell meets the Wu-Tang Clan, Murdoch summons a demon child, and Noodle is afflicted with flashbacks to her pre-amnesiac life. And then the band gets sick of Murdoch's occult routine, and he blows his chance of hooking up with Cameron Diaz. This is a jam-packed... Uh, chapter Trevor. Yeah, a lot. We're we're really reaching the climax of the book here. This is one moment where the lore stands in for the real life. Junior Dan get, did get arrested, I believe, on the Canadian border huh. during the Phase One tour. Exactly why isn't clear. I believe in Murdoch. It's because he had some like unclaimed fertilizer or something like that. And a gun. And a gun. <laughs> yeah. But Junior Dan, it looked like he wasn't going to be able to play their Toronto gig, uh, and then. They did get this guy, Roberto Akshapinti, which who's a real guy, uh, and tried to quickly teach him all the bass parts, but then Junior Dan showed up at the last minute and, uh, right. and was able to yeah. play with him. Let's talk about some, some lore characters who we meet. We meet the black-skinned demon boy.
1: Nice going, Murdoch.
0: Murdoch accidentally made him by doing some half-drunken... Uh incantations then we meet Nature who's gorilla's seven foot Tall goggle-eyed ginger bodyguard With a heart of gold is that smoggy I think that's smoggy it's gotta be smoggy right Yeah uh smoggy of course is damon Albarn's uh bodyguard who Appears on the fall especially At the beginning of the track uh this What is it the joplin spider
1: yeah, saying that spider venom is uh, extra painful to primates. We got Colonel Duffy, their tour manager.
0: Uh, I did write down a list of Murdoch's tour reading list, uh, but I'm not going to bother. It's just every all the Satanist shit you'd imagine is what yeah. he was reading. Yeah. His writer, though. Let's talk about the tour writer. Sure,
1: yeah. What's, what's on there?
0: It started out with 48 cans of strong continental beer, uh, plus an assortment of sandwiches. But then as... as Murdoch's interest in the occult and his diva attitude expanded, so did the writer, and eventually it had uh, smoked hemp, spider's liver, juniper berries, goat shit, hemlock, powdered snake bone, bunches of lavender, nettles, and yarrow stalks.
1: Which were accompanied by the usual array of potato-based elixirs.
0: This is where we really get the the band, like, being sick and tired of Murdoch shit. This is, like, Mm -hmm. where this... Really starts to build, you know. Yeah, steadily mounting, like I said. Uh, which brings me to my discussion question: What's the most annoying thing a roommate's ever done to you? Well, uh, one of my
1: roommates uh, had—he uh, has this dog who uh, bit our landlord and got us kicked out of our apartment.
0: <laughs> that's pretty. That's up there. I had a roommate who who hit on my girlfriend, now wife, while he was drunk. That was pretty annoying.
1: You're kind of the 2D, and he's the Murdoch in uh, that situation, <laughs>
0: huh? <laughs> I guess I guess that's true. Which I think makes your wife uh, Paula Paula Cracker. A little bit of a wife analog for Paula Cracker? Uh, yeah, Paula Cracker. Uh, subheading, Hollywood and bust. Summary, gorillas move to Tinseltown to look at screenplays, attract an entourage of L.A. scum, start making a terrible movie, and play a one-off gig in Portugal.
1: And here we really were really hitting the nadir of the gorillas story the darkest hour.
0: We meet a couple of characters here. We meet Wee Jimmy Manson who's a squire right. at the Gorillas' uh, L.A. house. He leads a cult of young women and he writes terrible folk music.
1: Yeah, basically you know, Charles Manson.
0: Charles Manson. And then we also meet Alfred C. Klinker who's the director of the ill-fated Gorillas movie Take One. Who is the band that Charles Manson actually hung out with? It was the, the Beach, Beach Boys, Boys, right?
1: Yeah, he, he yeah. became friends with I think uh, Dennis Wilson.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Of course it would be the Beach Boys, like, the most fucked up American band with, like, the darkest energy surrounding them. Of course they would attract Carl Isn't that great, though?
1: I feel like some, like, maybe, like, you know, some of our listeners may only be familiar with the Beach Boys as, like some kind of proxy by like John Stamos and Kokomo. You know, the Beach <laughs> yeah. Boys were like a really fucked up band.
0: Yeah, they were like at one point they were the most brilliant like artists in rock and roll and then they were like the the most fucked up like mentally ill hacks in in <laughs> rock and roll. Yeah, that's the whole I definitely read Rise of the Beach Boys, that's for sure. Yeah,
1: go go look up about uh go look up the Smile sessions if you want.
0: Okay, I got a, I got a good discussion question for you Trevor. If gorillas truly walked among us as living breathing creatures, who would be your first choice to direct them in a movie
1: that is a good question right depends on what kind of movie i would want to see made about them that is key who would be good to direct a gorillas movie
0: i mean edgar wright pops into my mind he's kinetic oh, and british and would get the humor um i think the coen brothers might be kind of fun yeah that'd be a fun one too and then i'm thinking about the dark and creepy aspects maybe a del toro could do something cool with it oh
1: yeah how about um how about a david lynch one
0: Oh, come on. Lynch directing a gorillas movie? Sign me up. Okay, subheading, Hear No Evil. Summary. Three monkeys take advantage of an Unlock Kong Studios and remix the self-titled into a dub reggae album to Murdoch's chagrin, Russell's delight, and most other people's general indifference. And then the first gorillas movie falls apart. Murdoch gets cast in a TV series and then fired from it for being too old and then decides to start all over with a new movie.
1: So you know they were being really exhaustive here because the Space Monkeys get their whole get a whole thing just to themselves.
0: They get special lore. Let's meet the Space Monkeys. I have a little dossier for them. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll give you a little sample of each one. Right, there's three of them. You got Desire. He's the number one most wanted by the Intergalactic uh, Society for the... Prevention of Vinyl Cruelty. And his natural
1: climate is a moist studio in Jamaica.
0: Dabursive, who's dating Natalie and Bruglia, and is thought of as being, you know, like he doesn't quite pull his weight. He's sort of the slacker of the group. He likes red wine. And then there's Gava, who who invented Gava House, which is a genre that's like a sped-up version of jungle music.
1: And he likes collecting clothes. We've met the space monkeys. They represent the whole see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil thing.
0: Yes, exactly. And I'm very excited to finally get to Like It Comes Home, probably next season. Yeah, that'll be fun. fun. That'll be a lot of fun. I do like uh, the the mention of Brian Piss, who's a, a musical con man. He gets credited for doing the string arrangements on Leica, even though there are no string arrangements, Trevor.
1: Really? That's interesting. Wacky. And um, uh, Murdoch kind of hypothesizes that uh, Dr. Wurzel might have had something to do with the whole episode.
0: He also says, uh, if you give Three Monkeys a great album and an unlimited amount of computers, sooner or later they're going to come up with a dub version of Shakespeare. I loved that quote. That was really good. <laughs> Uh, Okay, Trevor. Stunt casting exercise. Gorillas have been hired to play the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Who plays who? Russell is Donatello. Because he does machines.
1: Yes. Remind me who the Ninja Turtles are. There's the blue one. He's Leonardo. Leonardo Leonardo's the blue one. He's the leader of the group. He's got the swords. Um, He's got the swords. Then there's the red one. Who is he? Uh, Raphael. He's cool, but crude. He's the cool one. That's Murdoch, obviously.
0: Right. Michelangelo's a, a, a party dude. Oh, maybe Michelangelo's Murdoch. Well, in a way Murdoch is kind of Leonardo and Raphael and Michelangelo. Yeah, I don't think I don't think
1: you can really I don't think you can really parallel them like that. What is this question, Dylan?
0: I'm saying here's my answer. Okay. Uh, I think that the dominant characteristic of Murdoch makes him Raphael. He's the he's sure. the he's the the sarcastic, mean one. Cool but rude. Uh, and then I would give I would give two uh, D leader status because he sings and is the lead singer. And he's got blue hair. Phase One Noodle is is the party dude. I think she's the she's the boundless uh, basket of joy. That, that's fair, definitely. And I can't wait to see that fan art.
1: <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. week. please. Speaking of cool art, I love this uh, shot of Murdoch in the shoot to kill show. I think it's really cool. Oh,
0: that's like my favorite piece of art in the book, good. Really cool. It looks very like phase three to me. Like, it looks like a totally not like a phase one piece of art. J.T.
1: Hennessy is the name of his character. It was meant to be Easy Rider meets Dawn of the Dead, which, you know,
0: I'd watch that. Okay, we're here on the last subheading. This is the end. This is the end, Trevor. This is the end of, of the book for this episode. Are you ready? The film that time forgot. Summary, gorillas try their hand at screenwriting, attempt to stage an intervention on Murdoch's ego by way of analogy, fail to write a decent screenplay, and then tensions boil over into fisticuffs, which causes Murdoch to quit. The band That whole intervention
1: dun, dun, by way dun. of analogy thing That was a I think this is a big moment in the book This is almost kind of the climax Of uh, the first half of the book It's at least an like a thick underline
0: I love the writing here I actually love the yeah,
1: writing It's a thick underline over everything we've gotten so far Do you, uh, you want to kind of Maybe we should read it back and forth Because it, it goes along with uh, a couple characters yeah. going to this. Do you want to start with what Russell says
0: So what happened here is Murdoch has, has asked Ideas for the script from the band Russell says how about this A bullying egomaniac Bass player is convinced he can rule The world he makes life a misery For the other members of his band with his Constant narcissistic displays Fate takes a hand though when he develops A disease one that simply Attacks the part of the brain that contains The ego this is manifested by A huge boil that appears on the skull And then 2D adds he discovers That he's not the only one There's
1: thousands of the big-headed tossers falling victim to this disease all around the world. The papers are full of stories of these plague-ridden celebrity-obsessed knobs. And then Noodle concludes that with, It's revealed that this disease is nature's way of getting rid of the unwanted, destructive part of society. All of the people whose ego has outgrown their talent receive the boil. The growth is the boil on the head of humanity. It is time for it to be removed. On a certain given day, all of the afflictive, instinctively-gathered, Zombie-like in the middle of a stadium ground Where they are obliterated by a burning light That appears from the sky
0: Russell says, the only way to avoid this fate Would be to awake from your ignorance Your overinflated self-opinion And realize that your talent However great, doesn't entitle you To act like a pain in the ass continually And then Murdoch goes Does the central character have this revelation? Is he saved or not? And then Russell says, I don't know Murdoch You haven't written the ending yet Does the bullying bass player have an epiphany that saves him, or is he removed from the face of the planet with the rest of the grime? You tell me.
1: And this is classic, like, bad trip stuff where you're confronted with all of your flaws. I love it. Which is supposed to kind of make you turn a corner and rethink your life, but here it's just lost on Murdoch 100%.
0: He doesn't get it at all. In fact, within, within minutes, he's strangling 2D.
1: Right. This is absolutely the climax of the first part of the book uh 2d says hey maybe we could cast jack black in the movie as you and violence erupts
0: yeah he he goes crazy he he strangles him russell eventually bashes him over the head murdoch's humiliated
1: cass brown just hammers on that caps lock key for some russell dialogue
0: and finally murdoch quits gorillas and his exit line trevor is happy life and all that you losers i'll see you on the other side ciao which uh, I almost thought might be like a reference to when George Harrison quit the Beatles and he said, see you boys around the clubs. It's <laughs> great.
1: And then, yeah, first half of the book ends with the very ominous line, gorillas were over.
0: Okay, I have a discussion question for you, Trevor. Sure. If you were going to quit Hallelujah Monkeys, what would be your last words out the door?
1: Ooh, good question.
0: If only because I know that it kind
1: of rubs you the wrong way. See you, Dylan. Don't get lost in heaven.
0: Oh, you bastard! Yeah. That was it. We made it to the end of it. We did. I'm sorry for how
1: long this is, everybody. But hey. Never say we never gave you any gorillas lore.
0: You know what? It's gonna feel good, Trevor. Once we finish this episode, the next episode, and the next episode. Like I said, we'll feel like we've cleansed ourselves. We've made it through the entire gorillas lore.
1: We'll be through the. We'll be through the labyrinth.
0: I would love to invite all of you listening at home to check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, YouTube, Instagram, Amino. I would love to invite you to write us in a nice review on iTunes or join our Discord server or. Support the show with a monthly donation on Patreon. Thank you so much to those of you who have already chosen to do that. We really appreciate you.
1: We appreciate it so much. Thank you so
0: much, guys. You guys roll!
1: Until next time, I'm Trevor Ickrath. I'm Dylan Flynn. Don't get lost in heaven. Demo. We're gonna rock this town. Rock it inside out. We're gonna
2: rock this town. Think of the screen and shout.